A message from the Virginia Department of Health. Yes, Virginia, you can help stop the spread of COVID-19. Stay home, wash your hands, wear a mask in public, and stay six feet away from others. Learn more at bdh.virginia.gov. All right, we bring in the third base coach of the San Francisco Giants. He's the professor, and we have a lot of fun talking ball with uh, Woe and Bill Lasky, as we'll do it tonight. Woe, how are you? Marty, I'm great. I'm looking forward to talking with you and Bill this evening. We've got a beautiful day in the Bay Area tonight. Yeah, well, we've we got to deal with the news of the day. And, of course, uh, we just have to keep waiting here. And uh, the union has rejected the latest proposal and said, just tell us where to show up and how many games. And that's where we are now. So as a sport, uh, I said I had a lot of joy watching the draft this week. But uh, I think baseball, we need to get a little bit of some happiness in here somewhere along the way. Don't you agree? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I thought you hit the nail right on the head there when you talked about the draft. I mean, it brings a smile to my face. You know, I didn't watch a lot of it, but I did see some highlights. You know, um, when kids get drafted and when their families around them and how excited they are, it makes you think back to, you know, when you were in high school or, or college or wherever you were drafted out of. And uh, it was such a such a great time in your life. Your whole future is ahead of you. You know, to think to play professional baseball, you've been thinking about that since you were eight or nine years old. And it comes to reality. And for these guys in this draft, they were all top picks, right? Six rounds or whatever it was. So um, they're in good position. Uh, they're, they're getting some money to sign, and I'm sure they're chomping at the bit. They wish this COVID thing would get over like the rest of us so they could go play ball. Yeah, it's not going away so fast. Uh, it doesn't know uh, boundaries of states or summer or anything else, and it's, uh, it's spiking up in Arizona, California, uh, Texas and places that, that you may have to travel to. So I think things are still very much in the up in the air. And uh, as you and I have talked about it, uh, I think we just have to sit back and, and see what's going to happen. But my feeling is the health of yourself, the players, everyone connected with the game, and everyone in the country, that will determine what's going to happen no matter what the players and owners agree on. I think you're right. Um, you know, myself personally, I mean, I don't know uh, how many weeks, you know, I think it was a few weeks ago we thought we'd have a decision on whether we were going to play or not or an agreement. And the longer we wait here, you know, the worst things the worst things look for, as you said, Florida, Arizona, Texas, and those were the three cities that MLB was thinking about, you know, playing the season at our spring training sites. And it's not looking as rosy now as it, as it did, you know, a few weeks ago. So um, we're just going to have to wait and see, you know, when we get the agreement. But there, I'm sure there is concern uh, for, for all the players and, and the owners. You know, they want to keep everybody healthy. And this thing is, uh, you know, it depends where you sit on it. But it isn't, uh, it isn't going away, as you said. And uh, that's got to be a concern for, for everybody. All right. All right. That is uh, our professor, Ron Wotuswo. Uh You got to chat with a few people this week from River Islands. Uh, I, mean, I was thrilled that happened uh, out at the Priest Ranch uh, wine tasting room up in Yountville. Yeah, you know, like everybody else, you know, we've been cooped up a little bit. And, and Laurie, we said, let's go up to Yountville and, and get a, a coffee and a pastry from Bouchon and, and pick up some wine. And that's what we did. So we went up, and I went into Priest uh, Ranch Winery, and we sat down, and I did a little tasting. And the couple next to us, Marty, they know both of us. We met them out at the Christmas party. We had Renee and Casey and 
uh, Ravi and Casey and Renee and Sabrina. And these two couples, they live out in River Islands for a few years now. One of the couples came from Cupertino, the other one from Dublin. And Lori started talking to the, the, the girls there, and they were raving about the schools on how that you know how good the schools were, and the transition from you know teaching kids in class um, to to teaching them at home because of the technology and how advanced these schools are. They are just so happy to be there. And the other thing that really struck me in the conversation is they went on and on about the sense of community. You know, they're with this COVID thing going on. We both know how much uh, space they have out there with the lakes and the walking trails and, you know, the bike paths and, and the basketball court. You know, they see their community out on the street all the time. And they said everybody's helping each other. They don't feel so isolated. So they had nothing but great things to say about River Islands. And they were wondering when you were going to go back up to see everybody, Marty. I love it. Absolutely. I'm going to give Colleen a call on Monday and uh, make a trip out there. And uh, absolutely, I want to check it out. I'm, I'm a candidate for River Islands. I want to tell you, it's growing on me. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, they had great things to say. It was nice to talk with them. I like it. All right. Let's bring in Bill Lasky. Bill, uh, how are you tonight? I'm doing good, Marty and Ron. I just want to know how much tasting did Ron do when he was up there? <laughs> well, you know, I went off my beaten path. I've had the reds. In this hot southern months, I don't drink much white wine, but I've been leaning towards the whites, so I, I did a, a tasting of whites. And um, I, just one round of the whites, because I'm still partial to the red. So we stopped right there. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned that the, cab, the 2018 cab, cab Cabernet Sauvignon is uh, being featured by Priest Ranch Wines. So uh, you'll hear me talk about that during the show. But I'm glad you're up there, glad that you got to see it, and I'm glad that uh, we could be part of River Islands. I, we are absolutely going to take a trip up there. Well, a few things to talk about. Uh, just some of the things about baseball this week, and uh, we didn't get to a, a couple of them last week, and I wanted to bring a, a couple up. And, well, um, one, you know, this day in baseball history is always so much fun. And you guys remember Steve Boros, who was the manager of the Padres? Remember him? Sure. Yeah, vaguely. I, I don't remember him too well. Bill, Bill, he was probably more in Bill's era, wasn't he, Bill? Yeah, he was there. He, he managed a few teams, but I do remember him in the Padres. Yeah, very smart man, very smart man. And uh, so on, t- on today's date, <clears throat> or a couple of days ago, um, there was a call the night before, and the game and it went against them, and he was just incensed about it. And this is now, we're back in 1984. He goes and gets a videotape of the call, and the call is clearly wrong. So he goes up to home plate with a videotape and hands it to the umpire. And, of course, you know what they do. They throw him out of the game before the game even starts. So it made me think of uh, stuff like that, Woe, and uh, I, I don't know. You, you've had your moments with the umpires over the years. Uh, we love Eddie Montague, and we tease him all the time about some of these things. But you ever have a situation like that where you, get, where you had to deal with the umpire before the game or something like that? Well, actually, uh, Marty, it's funny you say that because I have. Uh, I think I told the story about Bruce Froming calling me into the umpire's room. But I did something similar um, when we were playing the Dodgers, the Dodgers series. So Dave Roberts was an outfielder for the Dodgers. And every time he'd go for a base hit bunch, what he did a lot of, he'd step on home plate. And, right, Bill, you step on home plate when you, when you bunt the ball, you're out. 
And I tell mm-hmm. the umpires at home plate to look for it. And of course, that night he steps on home plate. Nobody, nobody makes a call. And I'm just livid. It's so obvious. So I go back to the video room. I get the photograph printed out of him making contact with the ball and his foot's right in the middle of home plate. And I tell uh, Brandon Evans, one of our clubhouse guys, I said, send this over to the umpire's room. And, um, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I didn't care. I was that upset that they, they, they weren't watching this. And so then, you know, I take the lineup card to home plate. I was hoping Boach was going to take it that night, but he never took it up until his <laughs> last year here. So I got to walk the lineup card up, and they uh, they weren't too pleased with me. I'll put it that way. I stayed in the game, but they were not very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, Ron, you know, back when, you, when you're talking about the early 80s in my era, those umpires, you couldn't argue with them. They were one way. It was their way or no way. And with Doris doing that at home plate, the first thing out of 84 must have been a VHS tape he brought up there because I don't think they had CDs back then. That was the first thing I thought. And how in the hell did he get that up there at home plate if it was a picture or whatever? But I think any umpire in today's world even would throw him out if they tried to show him up the following day. Well, what about yeah. today? Uh, if you come across a situation like that, how do you deal with it today? You know, I think it's a little bit different today in the fact that the umpires have lost a little bit of their, uh, I don't know, their their dominance or control over the game, you know, because of video replay. Mm-hmm. I find that maybe it's because I'm out at third base and I'm talking to them more and getting to know these guys and we have a, a much better relationship than I had when I was a bench coach screaming at them from the side. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I just feel like they're more rational. And because of the video replay, there's not as much arguing about calls and you missed it or you didn't because we're going to the video replay. And it's 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 changed um, quite a bit. The relationship, I think, with players and umpires and umpires dealing with the game. That's the way I I felt it the last few years. Bill, I don't know what you've seen with these changes. I just think, Ron, you know, when they developed the American League and National League Umpire Association, put them all together, uh, I knew right then and there it was going to be a mixture of personalities, attitudes, uh, just relationships broke up. And I think that has some of it, too, because you do get to know umpires. You get to know them being a third-base coach, and they, they change so much. And I know they change the groups every year. They try to get the people to change, but... I'm, I'm right there with you. There's no uh, one set rule because they know if they screw up, okay, the the, the, the play will be turned over. Um, I think there should be some kind of uh, rationality where if they do have so many screw-ups, just like this Angel Hernandez thing that's blowing up in baseball now, I think they need to step back or they need to go back to AAA. There should be some kind of justification if there's so many mistakes that they need to step forward and do something to them, as a player does, if they mess up, they go to AAA. So I think umpires should have something like that. Mm, boy, that'll be interesting. Hey, the other part, uh, we had fun with the draft, talking about that. Uh, as I opened the show tonight, a lot of enthusiasm. And it made me think about this. Um, these kids get drafted, and some of them, whoa, have never used a wood bat before. 
And I imagine you must see this with, with kids who come into ball now. They go to the Cape Cod League or something like that. Uh, it's required to use a wood bat. But <clears throat> I was just curious, you use a wood bat uh, as a kid or did you ever use a metal bat? And wh- what about kids coming in today? Do you have to make a transition with these guys, even defensively, where you play uh, a wooden bat game as opposed to a metal bat game? Yeah, that's a good question, Marty. I mean, and not as much defensively, um, you know, um, but it is a big adjustment offensively. And I remember I messed around with a wood bat in high school here and there, not in games uh, as much because the aluminums were so much lighter and your sweet spot is so much bigger. You know, you could hit the ball on the handle with an aluminum bat and you could still hit a fairly decent line drive. You do it with the wood and, you know, the bat split in half. So, um, you know, as far as the total distance, it's not that big of a deal. They're very comparable, but there's a lot more hits in aluminum. And the big adjustment um, for the kids is when they grow up with an aluminum bat, um, you know, they don't have to get it started as much. You talk about separation where you get your hands started. You know, people call it a hitch or, or slight movement um, aluminum bats or hands can be stiller because they're much lighter you know it's easier to get that bat through the zone and it's easier to keep a shorter stroke but now they get that wood in their hand and the big adjustment was they need to get something going because the bat's hot, hot, heavier and you can't you know you can't start with a dead stop with your hand so um, it is hard to project you know not the scouts that have been around that watch these guys in college you know they they've seen a million players but um, it is an adjustment for the players and the projection on how well they will do with a wood bat. Ron, I like the projection when you said when they use from aluminum to the wood because then they're going to really feel it when those guys come in on their hands and they buckle those hands and they break that bat and their hands are bruised and their thumbs if they're not learning the right way to swing that wood bat. And coming right. from uh, college days, I mean, they're, when you're looking at some of these numbers they're putting up in that draft, and Marty, I'm glad you brought that up because I saw the excitement the same way you did, and I just relived all those little exciting days when you were coming up through high school and college with those things with your family, and it was really cool. I enjoyed watching that first day of the draft, but getting back to the wood bats, I think it is an adjustment for hitters. Uh, they're used to seeing a, a ball that may be halfway up the barrel taken off, and now it's an out with wood. So there is a, a difference there on both sides, and I, I don't think these hitters are going to take that long to adjust once they start getting the style of bat and the different ways the grain is. And, of course, it's all maple now. Uh, so I, I think that that's going to be a quick adjustment for any hitter coming from college or high school. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun, as I said, <clears throat> seeing the uh, the kids and the smiles. And uh, my grandson Noah graduated from the eighth grade to ninth grade, and uh, – I said, what should I get him? I don't think maybe get him a wood bat. Start swinging a wood bat. You know, it's time. He's, he's old enough to start swinging a wood bat. But uh, we had a lot of fun with the joy with him this week as well. Hey, uh, one thing we like to do on the show, and that is spotlight a coach and then a couple of players and get your guys' uh, recollection of it. And I, it's really fun for me to go back and, and say, boy, I forgot this guy was a coach. And I'm going to start with Ron Paranoski, guys. 
this is a left-handed relief pitcher for many, many, many years. Uh, coach with the Dodgers. He played in L.A. as well. And uh, all of a sudden, 1995, they let him go. And he ended up being part of the Giants minor league system. And then eventually getting up to the big leagues. And, whoa, you were here with him. Ron Paranoski, the left-handed reliever. Uh, I know Bruce Jenkins enjoyed watching him as a Dodger. And uh, he, he was quite a left-handed relief pitcher, the Twins as well. Yeah, he was, Marty. I mean, not only was he a great pitcher, but he had a great reputation as a coach. You know, he had all those those uh, stud starters. You know, I mentioned them last week, and Hershiser and, and, and the rest of the guys over there. I can't remember all of them now. Bill probably remembers the pitchers he had, but he had some real good pitchers over there, and we talked about him helping Russell Ortiz. But I love Perry from day one when I saw him. 98, I was a third base coach my first year in the big leagues, and I remember walking up to him in the minor league fields when we were in spring training and introducing myself, and we hit it off, and I think it was because we we're both Polish-Americans, right? Uh, Baron Husky. Matter of fact, he's in the Polish uh, National Polish Hall of Fame, so we had a lot of fun with that, talking to each other, and uh, was an outstanding pitching coach. I really enjoyed his stories about Tommy Lasorda and all the winning years they had there in L.A., listening to him talk about uh, how things went down over there. Of course, Joey Malfitano, another great coach, was was part of that group as well. And the last thing I'll say about Perry, well, two things. You know, he, he had the strings out, Bill. You remember? He was big on pitching yep. down and away. Cause where do you want to go yep. with a pitch, Bill, when you're behind in the count and you want to limit the damage and you need a strike? You can't throw it down the middle. you got to master that down and away pitch where you get the least amount of damage. And he was one of the first guys to have the strings in the bullpen. He, he put strings there in that location where you wanted to throw the ball. And he hit that hard. It's like today our pitching coaches have strings for, you know, the high fastball. Um, they, they, they like to use that high fastball. But Perry was known for that. And the last thing he was known for was telling me to get a pair of red pants. Because when we go on our flights on travel day, if we spilt the wine falling asleep on the plane, it wouldn't stain the pants. Or nobody could notice that you spilt the wine. <laughs> what a veteran move. Just a veteran move right there from a pitching coach. That's right. But I tell you what, Ron, I didn't know you were Polish because I'm 50. 50% Polish, so I know we're Polish brothers now. And on the other yeah. hand, I was you took my thunder away from him being in the Polish-American Hall of Fame because that was one of the things <laughs> how he introduced himself to me when I first got to know him. And what an intelligent pitching coach. And you threw some names. I throw Fernando Valenzuela. He was so, so such a teacher to him. Jerry Royce, uh, Bob yeah. Welch, Dave Stewart. I mean, he had a ton yeah. of good pitching coach. And he was there for 14 years. And I'm glad Marty touched on him. He was really a hell of a reliever back in the day with the Dodgers. I just looked at him while you were talking 70 games and, and 69 games uh, in the 60s. And just a really good reliever, good numbers. And um, and the the thing about it, Ron Paranowski was one of the best pitching coaches around in the 80s and the 70s to lead the Dodgers to many World Series. Um, and you know what? Him and Tommy Lasorda were best friends. He was on his hip all the time. Sure, they had arguments, but, uh, you know, when you look at the, the two top head coach and pitching coach back in those or manager, um, it would definitely be Lasorda and Paranowski because both of those guys worked very well. And, you know, tip your hat to him. He went from the Dodgers and now he's with the Giants. He's been with the Giants for many years. 
and the education that he gives kids coming through the minor leagues, it's priceless because, uh, you know, you start talking to the top 10 pitching coaches ever, and I would say Ron Paranowski is in that top 10. Well, do you ever see him yeah. anymore? Is he around? No, you know, I haven't seen him in a few years, and I haven't spoken to him. You know, there was a lot of years there he'd come to spring training and uh, – um, you know, even when he was, you know, off the major league staff, he'd still come in the spring and help out. But it's been three years since I've seen Perry, and, and I hope he's doing well. He lives down there in Florida, and uh, he'd, be a, he'd be a good one to, to reach out and give a call to. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. 737 mm-hmm. games. Now, you mentioned the strings. That goes back to Branch Rickey, believe it or not, in Dodgertown. Wow. Uh, he started okay. in with the strings. Uh, he would make that box, mm-hmm. and you'd have to throw yep. it within that box. Uh, Brand, that's an old Dodger trick going back to 1948 uh, when Branch Rickey started that. And the other thing is when Paranoski got let go by the Dodgers, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, the question was Lasorda whether he protected him or not, so... Uh, who knows? But another anniversary that may apply to this, I'll ask you this question since we're talking about a bullpen coach. Uh, in 2006 or eight or so, Larry Rothschild of the uh, the Cubs used a cell phone to call the bullpen <laughs> to uh, to communicate. And now Paranoski's an old school guy. Now, I don't think they had cell phones when he was around, but how did you guys communicate with the bullpen in those days? Yeah, well, you know, not not every dugout had the phone, you know, that was you could call down there. And uh, so you had always had to have hand signals. And uh, so I'll never forget as a bench coach, you know, with, with Perry talking about Paranowski, uh, we never used a cell phone. I mean, but we did use walkie-talkies. And when, when the walkie-talkie didn't work or they didn't have a phone, where you have to give hand signals. And I'll never forget my first year in 98, Perry was the pitching coach and Juan Lopez <laughs> – from Puerto Rico, you know, he, he understood English very well, speaks good English, but he couldn't understand Perry. Perry would call down and go, guys, that's so sore, kiss him up. And, you know, and, 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 and Lofi would say, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, you got to give me a signal. I can't understand Perry, and I can't, I can't ask him to say it again because he'll start yelling. So, so I had to come up with hand signals to Juan Lopez, and you know, Juan would hang up the phone, say, "Okay." He looked down at me, and you know, our tallest reliever, I'd put my hand way up. Our shortest reliever, I'd go way down low. Or yep. our, our heaviest reliever, I'd put my arms out like giving the big guy. And and Lopi was so happy when we had those hand signals. Um, because he couldn't understand Paranowski, and that's how we did it. That's funny. And you know what, Ron? That's how they used to do it all the time. The, the pitching coach, and sometimes in the minor leagues, always symbol different guys in the bullpen. And I'll never forget we had a African American pitcher who had a fro, and that was one of the signs. The guy would just put his hands <laughs> over his head like a big fro. I mean, we yeah. had all different ones. The, the chubby guys that go around the belly, holding the belly, and the tall guys, like you said, would reach real tall. I mean, it was funny. And then you'd get a couple guys, me, him, me, him, no, no, you. And then, that's how it always was in the back. Nobody knew anything back then. It was like guessing who he wants up, and then, oh, yeah, it's you, it's you. And then all of a sudden you're in the game. But uh, that's what the fun part about it when you didn't have phones and, and all the, the communication they have now. But that, that's exactly how they did it. Well, what do you have now? Well, you do you, now, of course, now you got bullpens out in the outfield. Now, I imagine you have a phone, right? Uh, a phone that's yeah, connected yeah. in the dugout? 
Yeah, every every uh, bullpen has a phone, and it has to have a phone. Now, you know, they standardized all those because the communication you have to have. And if the phone's down, you got to let the umpire know, and and you got to get another way to to communicate with them, whether it's a walkie-talkie or, or something like that. And the other thing, a lot of the bullpens have now, where you can't see the bullpen, is you have monitors. So if I can't visibly see the bullpen from the dugout, you know, I want to be able to look up in the outfield and see if they got a lefty up or a righty up because you're deciding on your pinch hitter because your decision enters in. If they have nobody up, you say, hey, I might sneak this lefty in. They're not going to bring the lefty in. He hasn't been warming up. So you let the, the guy in deck go out. And at the last minute, you call them back. If you show your hand, you're going to pinch hit the lefty. They may get a guy up real quick. So most of the bullpens where you can't see, or most of the dugouts where you can't see the bullpen, there's monitors in there um, to show you who's warming up so you know exactly what's going on. Well, you know, it's funny. <clears throat> in, base- <clears throat> Sorry. in baseball, some of the best stories involve uh, bullpen phones. And Mo Drabowski, who uh, pitched for the Orioles, the Cubs, uh, Kansas City, he he had kicked around. A very effective right-handed pitcher. But he was a character. And when he was with the Orioles, uh, he used to use the bullpen phone in the dugout or in the bullpen, and he would call the other bullpen. And he'd make believe he was the bullpen coach. And he'd say, get Lasky up. And uh, Lasky would start throwing, and they'd sit in the dugout and say, why is he throwing now? And he did this for, for many, many times until they caught on that it was Mo Drabowski doing it. How about that? That's great. That, that's a lot of fun. You know, that's the way the game used to be, huh, Bill? As you mentioned, there were a lot of things that you could get away with and uh, all in good fun. And it's the stuff that happens behind the scenes, but you don't see much of that happen today. There's so many cameras and video cameras on everybody. Um, a lot of that stuff is gone today. Hey, Bert Blylevin used to crawl under the stands to give somebody a hot foot. <laughs> I heard that one before. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I have heard. The hot foots are always notorious with people climbing behind a hole behind the dugouts back in the day and, the hot foot was always the fun ones, but you better be winning when you do that because if you're, you're horsing around and you're getting your tail beat, uh, I think you better run for cover if the manager finds it. But, you know, going going back to all the little phone things like you just mentioned, Marty, I, I can imagine there was more of that, but nobody really got caught doing it. You might have got away with it once or twice, but to, to come out and tell that, I, I think that would be sensational to start messing with the other bullpen that way. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't. No one tries it now because uh, you probably can mm-hmm. tap into the phone, right? Well, you probably get the number of, uh, of the opposing. I don't call. know if you can call. You know, I've never tried. You know, but you, you're giving me some uh, something to do this uh, year. Yeah. I might see yeah. if we can get back playing. I'm going to give it a go. But you know, I'll, I will tell you this: being a utility. You know, infielder at the end of my career up there, I was in the big leagues and back in AAA. You know, one of the uh, one of the jokes we used to play on each other, and Bill, I don't know if you ever had this happen to you, is you would get a, a cup of water, you know, from the Gatorade thing. It's a small cup of water, and you chew some gum. And, of course, if you're a utility player, you're on the bench watch, and you have all the time in the world to, you know, watch for people set set up who you're going to get. So you chew the gum, and you get the gum to the right consistency. 
So it'll stick for a little bit, and maybe in about 10 seconds, it won't hold. And what you do when a guy sits down, you get behind him or up above him somehow. <laughs> you take the gum onto the cup, you stick it up to the top of the dugout, and then you move away, right? You go get some water or do something. And about 10 seconds later, that cup of water falls on the guy, and he's looking around. He doesn't know who it is. And that's the kind of fun That's the kind of fun uh, we like to have. And you really felt good when you get a guy and he didn't know who did it. Would you do that, it Will? Does, Did you ever it? do that to anybody? Oh yeah, yeah, I did it a lot in, in the minor leagues. In the big leagues, I wasn't, I wasn't privy to do anything like that. They would have sent me back to AAA. I'd been around long enough. But in AAA, <laughs> I spent a few days down there, and, and we had some fun. <laughs> that, that's true, Ron. The minor leagues, you did more game playing and setting up people and different things like that. And uh, I just think that part of the game also has kind of disappeared. And that was really the minor leagues when you're on those long bus rides and you come in and you just want to prank the other guy or have some laughs, you know, kind of loosen up the gang. And those are all different things that every minor leaguer did back in the day. And it was just – and if you didn't, if you didn't laugh about it, you were going to get drilled for the next two weeks. You had to just kind of let it go, be the be the snap guy. Okay, all right, I get it, I get it, all right. But yeah, you know what I'm saying, Rod. If you don't take it, and you get mad and upset. Oh, you're you're a target then. Exactly right. <laughs> I love it. Hey, um, Mike McCormick. Uh, his name got in the in the uh, this day in baseball history. He was a terrific left-hander for the San Francisco Giants. He was a bonus baby, guys. Back in in the mid fifties, he was signed by the New York Giants, and he was a tremendous, tremendous high school pitcher. And he uh, they used to have the Journal American game in New York, uh, an All Star game, and he went back and was just, was amazing there. And the New York Giants signed him. Horace Stone have signed him. Well, he pitched a a five-inning no-hitter as a San Francisco Giant against the Phillies, and he got to the sixth inning, and he gave up a hit. And then the rains came and rained the game out, so it went back to five innings. The Giants won the game one to nothing, and he got credited for a no-hitter. Now, this stayed in the books until 1991, and then baseball said, well, if you don't complete the game, or if it's anything shorter than nine innings, you don't get credited for a, a no-hitter, even if you go 10-plus innings or so as a no-hit no hit game. And I was thinking about Mike McCormick because I got to meet him. And as I say, he was 17 years old when he first uh, got up to the big leagues. And I think they had him room with the trainer or something. Nobody wanted a room with the guy uh, because he was, you know, he was only a teenager. But did you guys know Mike McCormick at all, the lefty? Go ahead, Bill. I, I'm sure you have more experience with Mike than, than I did. I, I do. Yeah, a very good friend of mine. Uh, of course, he came to fantasy camp for so many years. Uh, just a stellar type guy. Just a stand-up guy. Told stories all about his childhood. As you said, uh, Marty, when he came up, he was a young left-handed pitcher and literally was, was scared. I mean, they brought him right to the big leagues as a big bonus baby. Uh, and he pitched with the New York Giants back then. And, of course, uh, he was the only Cy Young winner the Giants had for the longest time until Tim Lincecum won his first and then won his second. Uh, but Mike is, is struggling, uh, 80 years old. He's got Parkinson's now. Um, I talked to him once in a great while. It's difficult for him right now. But uh, just a great Giant, just a great ambassador for the game and one of the nicest human beings you'd ever meet. 
Yeah, I got to meet him uh, at the ballpark and at fantasy camp, and uh, just a sweet guy. But, um, well, this is one of those 17-year-olds. Can you imagine this, well, 17 years old in, in the mid-50s? And you had to stay in the big league roster for two years if you were a bonus baby. And we've talked about Joey Malfitano and those stories. And here he was. Nobody wanted a room with him, and uh, he's in the big leagues as a 17-year-old. Wow, that, that's that's simply amazing. I mean, you see it in other sports, right? You see guys come out of college in football. Obviously, that's where they come out of. And, you know, there's been a few guys come out of high school to play professional basketball. Um, but baseball, I mean, you know, to come out of to come out of high school and be that young and, and to play at that level, I mean, you learn so much in the minor leagues. I mean, I know I did. I I wasn't even close to thinking about playing major league balls, baseball when I was in, out of high school. No way, Bill. I don't know how you feel. It is just simply amazing that a guy can can make that jump. And uh, yeah. you know, I've 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 said hello to Mike many times at the ballpark for events that we have there, and you know, when they have reunions and things. And it was always a, a pleasure to talk to. Uh, well spoken, you know, quiet guy, very very humble. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about him. I didn't know he was uh, had Parkinson's. So thanks for sharing that with us, Bill. Yeah, you know, Ron, there was a handful of guys in the 60s, 50s that went right from high school to the big leagues. The first guy that I ever remembered, even going through college and then going right to the big leagues, was Bob Horner. And the pressure he had, I remember when he was at Atlanta, the pressure was on Sports Illustrated cover, all this stuff. So just think a kid coming out of high school and thrown into the big leagues. That had to have been just an eye-opening experience, and and Mike handled it very well. Yeah, he did. And, wow. uh He was a giant in 62, uh, the year they went to the World Series, and coming back uh, on the plane from one of the games, uh, Horace Stoneham said, well, it's been a pleasure having you here. Wherever you are next year, good luck. And he knew <laughs> he was being traded, and he got traded to the Orioles uh, that winter. He always tells that story. But you talk about high school pitcher, and it's, it's funny because it's the draft, and every, you know you talk about all the scouting reports. Everybody sounds like the next, uh, you know, Juan Marichal or Lincecum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but David Clyde uh, came out of high school and went. Eh, yeah. Guy pitched in the big leagues. You know, yeah. he graduated high school in June fifteenth and June nineteenth. He was pitching in Texas. Uh, Mike Morgan, remember how many years he pitched in the big leagues, sure. a right-hander? Yep. He, yeah. Charlie Finley, did that with him. And I think Tim Conroy, I don't know if you guys knew Tim, mm. uh, he ended up being a scout with Atlanta and Kansas City. So it's happened before uh, where the high school kid goes right to the big leagues. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you mentioned most of those guys were pitchers, which I think, you know, if you have the stuff, it's a little easier to do than to go from high school uh, hitting to ma- hitting major league pitchers. Yeah. My goodness. And, you know, so that was, you know, Bob Horner was one guy I remember. But the one pitcher that uh, I think made the jump, too, that was outstanding, you guys both remember him. You may not have seen him pitch, and that was he was a great pitcher. His name was Sid Finch. <laughs> with the Mets, do you remember? Remember the infamous Sid Finch? What was that? There was a, a mock story about yes. a, uh, a great pitcher. I, I don't exactly. remember the details on it, but I think it was a, it was all a farce, wasn't it? Yeah, we'll have Jay Horowitz on the PR guy from the Mets one of these days. He'll tell the Sid Finch story. Um, okay. yeah, it was all fictitious, uh, you know. And that's that they yeah. built. Yeah, Doug Greenwald sent me a text that don't forget about Joe Nuxall. And, of course, he was the youngest to ever pitch in the big leagues, and this happened in 1944. He was 15 years old. 
And uh, there was a shortage of manpower in those days because of World War II. And the Reds came to scout his father, Orville. Uh, and uh, they were scouting Orville. And then they saw the kid pitch, Joe Nuxall, who was still in junior high. He was 15. Uh, and they said, boy, the kid's better than Orville. And they signed Joe Nuxall. And he, wow. he, he pitched in the big leagues at 15 years, nine months, whatever. And uh, they brought him in in the ninth inning, and he got an out, and that was the last out he got. And uh, he, he didn't come back to the big leagues for eight years. And then he ended wow. up having like a 12-, 14-year career. Um, so that, that I like that story, too. You guys ever meet Joe Nuxall? He was a broadcaster for the Reds. I'm trying to remember because I, I think he was there when I was in the, in the 80s. He might have been there. Um, the name sounds very familiar. Of course, I, I, I know the name from baseball world, but – I just can't picture it. And, um, you know, sometimes you get to talk to a lot of those announcers when they're behind home plate. And other times you just kind of, you know, have their way because they're usually talking to the coaching staff or the manager of the team you're playing for. Yeah, Sam Spear just texted in and said, don't forget about Al Kaline, too. So. Nah, you knew oh, that, yeah. Now, you knew I knew that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was coming. Hey, uh ESPN's going to do something tomorrow night about McGuire and Sosa, the home run race of 1998. And who knows, with everything that's going on in baseball, we may need some story here to spark some interest, which actually I'm going to digress for a second and say if it is a 48 or 50 game season, anybody can win. Anybody can go to the World Series in 50 games. Maybe that'll be the hook of what gets everybody interested if the health is okay and baseball actually gets back on. So I just want to throw that in. I was thinking about it. But uh, 1998, Woe and Bill, McGuire, Sosa, 70 home runs, 66. And, of course, uh, you know, with the steroids and the PEDs and everything that's come out afterwards. But baseball needed it. It was an interesting thing for the fans. They loved it, and now there's going to be a big story on it. So I thought I'd just throw it out to you guys, what you remember about McGuire and Sosa in 98. Well, you can start with that one. Yeah, well, I um, you know, I saw McGuire when I was managing in the minor leagues. He was in Tacoma, and, uh, you know, he – he didn't look anything like he did in, in 98 and his following years in the big leagues. I mean, he was a good hitter, but he, he wasn't hitting for that kind of power. I mean, Tacoma is hard to drive the ball anyways, but he hit the ball hard. But I was I was all in on, on that home run chase. It was my first year in the big leagues. I was so excited to not be in the minor leagues, to be coaching in the major leagues, and to watch these two guys go head-to-head. The coverage they had, I remember, you know, watching it every night, you know, where they're at. It was an exciting time for me, and I think I think baseball loved it. Um, I think the fans loved it. And, um, you know, there's great memories of watching those guys. I thought it was great for baseball, you know, regardless of all the, you know, the, the, the steroid talk and all that. Um, they went through it, and, and uh, it was exciting to me, Bill. I don't know how you feel about it. Oh, I was right there too. I, I was finding out where they were playing, when, and who was the pitcher, who was pitching against them. And when I remember this, I remember the the commercial with Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox, and they were playing catch, and all the girls were screaming at McGuire, "Hey, what?" And Tom Glavin looks over to Maddox. He goes, "Yeah, chicks like the long ball." You remember that <laughs> yeah. commercial? It was one yeah, of the great ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing. But I was right there with you, Ron, watching all that, too. I was a fan. What about the last thing I'll say, Marty, real quick, if I could, is, 
is the one thing that stood out when McGuire, you know, after he did that, he was a player, which people did this with Bonds as well, and I didn't do it with Sosa, but you'd go down early to the bench when you played when he was with the Cardinals, and you'd watch him take batting mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. because how far mm-hmm. he was hitting the ball. And I did it mm-hmm. myself. We'd go into St. Louis, and I didn't want to miss his batting practice because he was hitting them up there in Big Mac land, and he was shrinking the ballpark. It was something to see. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero was like that for me, too, to watch him uh, take take BP. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, and but what about Sosa? Uh, you know, he gets absolutely no consideration, of course, with the PDs and everything else for the Hall of Fame. That's going to knock him out. But what about Sosa, Woe, dealing with him as a player in the game and everything? What kind of player was Sosa? Well, he was uh, he was a, a very dangerous hitter. Obviously, he, he was hitting all those home runs. You know, we didn't play them uh, that much. Him being with the Cubs for for the majority of his career, I believe, um, we only saw him. You know, three or six games a year. You know, obviously, Dusty, you know, left the Giants. He had Barry Bonds to deal with, and he went to the Cubs, and, and Bake was the right guy to handle that big ego and, mm-hmm. and that mega star and, and Sammy Sosa. And I remember talking to Bake quite a bit about him, and I thought he did a great job with him. But he was he was a, a personality. I think he had his own um, – he had one of the guys – he had his own uh, BP thrower. He had his own strength coach uh, or hitting coach. You know, he that was a time in the game when when it was getting close, where you know players were starting to have their own people come in and override you know the coaching staffs. And Major League Baseball had to do something about that. Of course, the steroid era and allowing certain people to come in the clubhouse. Well, I'm getting off track here, but. You know, I, I didn't know Sosa very well just dealing with him. I mean, he was a guy that you didn't want to let beat you. I mean, he was that good and that dangerous, and uh, you'd, you'd walk him if, if the game was on the line because he was that good of a hitter. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Ron, Chicago loved him. When you always watched him in Wrigley Field, the right field bleachers would applaud him, and he'd always bring the American flag out there running out yeah. there. He was that Latin flavor type yeah. of player, you know, look at me kind of guy, but. I thought he was a very above-average player. I really did. I really liked him. And, and with all the PEDs and hitting all their home runs, and don't forget about the cork bat when he broke it. The cork came out and <laughs> yeah. on the infield. He blamed somebody else on the team. And then they grabbed the bat and ran it up. And they tried to hide it. You know, that whole story comes up to me about yeah. Sammy Sosa. But, you know, that going back to Sosa and McGuire, though, and as you said about the batting practices, uh, they had to have just lit up the board for batting practice the way they hit the ball and hit it so high and those home runs are so far and uh, just a good time of baseball for fans in that whole era. Well, I told you, Art Howe told me the story that when the Pirates uh, took, well, I may have said this uh, during one of our Sunday shows, when the Pirates took batting practice when Art was there with the lumber company and all that, they had different baseballs for batting practice. They would, they would bring out a different ball, so these guys just, Stargell and Parker and all these guys, Al Oliver, just crush the ball. And the other team would just sit there with their mouths open. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, playing for the Pirates. I, they certainly didn't have that ball when I was uh, taking batting practice. <laughs> I couldn't get it out of the infield for crying out loud. They probably used a softer ball when I hit. Very good. Hey, 98, though, for the Giants. And, of course, you're just up in the big leagues. An interesting year. Uh, you have to fight to, to get into a playoff game. With the Cubs, believe it or not, and you have to face Steve Traxel, who always gave the Giants trouble. He pitched so slowly. And Mark Gardner was on the hill, and the Cubs win the game 5-3. 
But you lose on Sunday, uh, excruciating kind of game, and Dwayne talks about this all the time. The Nephi Perez home run in the bottom of the ninth beat you, and you had a 7 nothing lead. You win that game, you wouldn't have had a playoff with the Cubs. And I'm sure you remember it. I'll just bring it up gently. Yeah, well, I remember both. Obviously, the, the Cub playoff game, you know, that we had to go there was a, a, just a magnificent night. You know, they had the Harry Carey balloon out there. It was packed. The atmosphere was a gorgeous night. It wasn't much of a game. Traxel shut us down. I was coaching third in the game. We we didn't put much together, and I remember that uh, very well. It was, it, was, it was great atmosphere my first year in the big leagues in that playoff game. But uh, the night before, or two nights before, as you said, it might have been the night before because um, we had to go play that one-game playoff. So I think we had to travel to Pittsburgh, I mean, to Chicago that night, at the day game in Colorado. We had a 7 nothing lead. And that's when they had Castillo, Walker, and who was in, in Bichette. And we had a 7 nothing lead going into the seventh inning or sixth inning. And they hit two three-run homers, just mm. big bombs. And here we go. We have a, a, a – I think we had a, a one-run lead in the game. And we were getting uh, – our relievers would run down from the clubhouse telling us about the Cubs game on, on, on what was going on. Mm-hmm. Because if the Cubs Cubs lost and we lost, we were still going. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I think Brant Brown in that game, the Cubs were uh, – were, um, uh, I think they were winning the game, and he dropped the fly ball, I think, that uh, caused them to lose lose the game. And uh, and then it was the ninth inning for us. We had Rob then on the mound. So we were all excited. All we had to do was get through the ninth inning. <laughs> and one of our relievers runs down, and he said, the Cubs lost. You know, if we win, you know, we're, we're winning the division. Mm-hmm. And no sooner than he said uh, the Cubs <laughs> lost, it was five seconds, then throws a slider down and in to Nephi Perez, and he yanks one into the right field seats right down the line. And our hearts, we were so happy for 10 seconds, and then we were just miserable for, for the rest of the night going to Chicago. Wow. Yep, wow. That, was, that was quite a moment. He was a giant, wasn't yeah. he, Nephi Perez, at some point? Yes, he was. Matter of fact, he, yeah. he certainly was, and uh, he could really pick it. I managed against him in the minor leagues coming up with Colorado, and he was a he was a nice player. He had some good years. I mean, he was a defensive guy more than his bat, but he could run into one, and he sure did against us. He, down and in, it was his hot spot. Mm. Yeah, Ron, and Ron, I remember that because he, like, golfed it out. And, you know, of course, lefties, they like that ball down and in, and he didn't really hit it all that good. He did it right down the right field line, and but it was just the way Nen threw it. Nice slider down and in, and he just really just knuckled it up off the the top of the bat and went out. And everybody, I, I think, I, every Giant fan was like, "Nelfi Perez, no way!" <laughs> you know, <laughs> now Dwayne and Dwayne gave Dwayne nightmares. He still talks about that. You know that, yeah, that it's, one... like a, it's like the uh, yeah, what was it the Bucky Dent home run against <laughs> yeah. the Red Sox? It's kind yeah. of the same deal, right? Bucky <laughs> Dent, come on, you kidding me, Nelfi Perez? <laughs> oh boy, boy, and that's baseball. See, that's what we miss. <laughs> You know, honestly, yeah. I, these guys, you know, look, I'm not going to get political on the thing, but that's what baseball is all about, these kind of moments uh, to bring mm-hmm. bring people back and that you remember forever. And baseball has got to realize it. They've just got to come to grips with it and, and understand it. So I won't make a statement, but that's my feeling about it. <laughs> hey, we've got a couple of players to talk about, so we'll take a break. Uh, Reggie Sanders. 
Uh, and uh, anxious to hear your thoughts about him. And then a lefty, a pretty tough guy, too, Alan Embry. Pitched a lot for the Giants. So let, let's uh, spotlight a couple of former players tonight. And also, it's the anniversary of the first interleague game. So get some of your thoughts on that. And we'll do that and more with Ron Wotus and Bill Lasky right after this. All right, so for in baseball today, uh, the Union and MLB at loggerheads are rejecting things back and forth. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, maybe we'll find out something on Monday. Uh, well, we'll see if you're going back to work so fast, so we'll see what's going on there. Uh, Reggie Sanders, uh, outfielder, was part of the Giants in 2002. I got to meet him uh, many times. Uh, maybe the one of the happiest guys in baseball, always a smile. And, boy, whoa, this guy could hit. He had good power. Yeah, Marty, you're exactly right. What stands out for me is he was always smiling. He was uh, just, uh, you know, a, a nice guy, always very content with himself and and the people around him. Never, never really was, uh, you know, got upset or mad at people. And that's what stood out to me because I was still a pretty young coach, 2002, and you know he had such good years in Cincinnati. Uh, center fielder, speed, power. He could steal a base. He could hit, hit, you know, beat you with the home run. He did swing and miss, you know what I mean? He chased that fastball up, but I think he hit 23 home runs for us in 2002. But he could beat you a lot of ways. And I remember when he came to us, I was so excited to, to get to, to work with him and know him. And that's what struck me is his professionalism. You know, as a young coach, when you have these, you know, he was a darn good player and an all-star. And, and then you get a chance to work with him and the respect that they show you and how coachable they are in relationship uh, that they build with you and, and his rest of your teammates. That's what impressed me about Reggie. And I get to see him now still when we go to uh, surprise. He's coaching for the Royals. Yeah. So he's an instructor with them, not in the major leagues. I'm, I don't know if he's a roving uh, outfield guy or hitting guy. Uh, but big old smile, just like you said, Marty, whenever you see him. And, and always fun to talk with Reggie Sanders. Bill, did you have much uh, much experience with, with Reggie? Well, I got to meet him, too. And, I mean, just like both you and Marty said, he was very a delightful guy. I always said hello to you, never, you know, pushed you away in the media side. He always was very open and happy. But I thought his best years, as I remember, and not really a couple years of the Giants, was when he was the Reds when he first came up. He was really hot. He had a few years stolen bases. I remember his speed, and he had that upper body strength. Hit the ball really well, over 300 home runs in his career. Everything was good with him. Speed, his defense was good, had a good arm, a good personality in the clubhouse. And I think that's one of the reasons why he went on to play many years after the Giants. I, I do believe I, I looked up 17-year career, which is pretty good. But, you know, when you look at a personality of a player, how well he plays, how he adjusts to roles, Reggie Sanders got an A-plus on my side. Yeah, 17 years in the major leagues. Well, you're right, 23 homers, 85 RBIs in 2002. But he's a guy, when you're going to win a pennant and you're in and you're in the mix, that's a guy you want to add. It was like Don Baylor used to be or Lonnie Smith or people like that. You know, there's mm-hmm. that one guy you add and you say, okay, now we can win a pennant. He was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right, Mario. Well, we went to the World Series with him. I mean, he yeah. could cover the outfield. You know how big the outfield was in our ballpark at, uh, you know, back at back at Pac Bell, we used to call it. It, uh, you know, you had to cover the field, and and he could run the ball down, like you said, uh, steal a base. 
hit with power, and he was a big reason we went to the World Series. Mm-hmm. Alan Embry, left-hander, 99 through 01, whoa, and uh, this guy was in a lot of games. And uh, Alan Embry, remember him, big left-hander, uh, would come in, and uh, he, he was a guy you could rely on. Yeah, Bill, why don't you start us off on Alan Embry? I'm curious, uh, your take on Alan. I know you've seen him a lot over the years. Uh, he, he played for just about everybody in baseball, I believe. So teams, yeah. <laughs> Mostly the American League. I mean, the Giants was the only, you know, he played with Atlanta a little bit, but uh, I think Marty was right. He was in every game, it seemed like, high 60, 70 games every year. Uh, he was in the middle. He was a setup, uh, three quarters, a good fastball, good breaking ball. Um, but, I, you know, when he left the Giants is when really I thought he took off when he switched for Boston. And then his last few years with Oakland, watching him play over there, I mean, he was still he still had a good fastball, lively fastball. And as a left-hander, he got guys out by bringing it up over their, their hands. He was a high fastball. He blew people away. And then he had that hard-breaking ball. But a very good left-hander for several years with the Giants. And, and he was that type of guy when you wanted a lefty middle or end, he was him. And, and that's what he did with the Giants. Uh, and I think it was a 99-2000 right in that area. Yeah, I'll tell you, well, today he'd be very valuable because he's got to face three batters. And this is a guy who could bring it. I, I bet today he would mm-hmm. be a big star. Well, you're exactly right. I, I was just going to mention that. But to be reincarnated, I'd come back as Alan Embry, a left-hander <laughs> that throws hard in the, in the low 90s, which has that high riding fastball. Um, he could get righties and lefties. As a matter of fact, he was he was more used. You know, it wasn't like a situational lefty. He had that hard slurve. But, you know, he was in Atlanta, and, and, you know, they had such good pitching over there and saw him pitch over there. When he first came to us, he had he had very good stuff, and as Bill mentioned, we used him in every every uh, uh, position possible. Um, but his you know his presence on the mound, I don't think he came into his own until Bill said as he as he left the Giants, he pitched good for for us. Don't get me wrong, but he matured. Mm-hmm. The one thing I remember about him um, was you know his command was shaky. You weren't you weren't sure what you were going to get, and ru- and runners rattled him a little bit when they got on base. You could you could run on him, and I think. As he matured as a pitcher, he got better and better and was able to have a better presence on the mound, pitch in the bigger moments uh, later on in his career. But uh, he was a very good pitcher for us and kept getting better and had a a nice Mm -hmm. career. Yeah, good scouting report. 882 games, 10 teams, 10 teams. Uh, he went from Arizona to the Giants. That's how he got here. I'm going to give you a name, Will. Remember Dante Powell? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I got plenty of stories about our number one pick at Long Beach State. Dante Powell played for me a couple of years in the minors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was the trade for Dante Powell. Okay. All right. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I remember the name. I did. did he make it to the Giants? I don't even remember if he did or not. Yeah, he had a cup of coffee. Dante was a number one pick, very talented, could really run. Uh, when you're number one pick, you know, you're going to get all the chances in the world. And uh, mm-hmm. um, he just never became the player um, that, you know, they projected him to be. And uh, got a cup of coffee, and that was about it. And and uh, his tools never uh, – he never mastered his tools and, and played at a high level in the big leagues like everybody expected he would. Boy, Brian hey, Sabian Ron, did a lot, didn't he? Didn't Brian Sabian make moves? Now that we every time we go through this, well, he just made moves. 
Well, I, I have to agree with you. I mean, the thing that, that really stands out to me in all the years I've been with the Giants, I remember my first uh, five years with Dusty was there. I think we played a total of three games that were meaningless. I mean, every year we were in the thing. Of course, we had some lean years when Felipe came and then at the beginning of Boach's career. But, you know, Brian always in his staff, Bobby Evans and the whole crew, Dick Tidrow, um, you know, and Pat Dobson was a great uh, uh, scout mm-hmm. for us. But, you know, they always put us, and Ned Coletti was there at the time, was a great tandem mm-hmm. with, with saves. And they always put us in a position to win. You know, every year we went out and we tried to, to, to win. And we always uh, – we didn't think about two years, three years down the road. Um, they always got us players, whether it was through trades or signings, to get us competitive. And certainly at the trading deadline, I don't remember a year that saves was there that we didn't add because we had a chance to win it. We, we never subtracted. And, you know, as a coach, as a player, um, those things, it's, it's, really, it's really gratifying uh, to work for an organization that gives you those resources like the ownership did and to have a general manager that goes for it like Brian mm-hmm. did with this organization. He did so many great things for this organization. Mm. Well said. And I know, you know, weeks ago, I know, Marty, you brought it up of Brian Sabian trying to get in the Hall of Fame and should be in the Hall of Fame. And, and I think we should mention that right now because you have general managers that sit on their hands and they don't want to make those trades. They don't want to be competitive. I remember him coming in here and the first person he traded was Matt Williams, one of the most favorite Giants in, in baseball history with, the, with San Francisco. And he was that type of card player, you know. He, he, if he felt he had to make a move, he did it. Uh, he didn't listen, but to anybody, to the people around him. And, and that's how great general managers make those moves, and that's how you win three World Series. And tips your hat to him because people just don't give him the respect in the game as what he should be deserved. Yeah, he'll get it, but it's a different game today. Uh, we all yeah. know it, and, uh, you know, it's analytical, and they look at a lot of different things as opposed to building a team through these kind of players because uh, Reggie Sanders was, you know, older when he came in here. You wouldn't even give him a look today. So it, mm-hmm. it's a different ball game, different ball game. Let's move on to uh, the anniversary of the first interleague game, Whoa, and uh, it's the Giants at Texas. Mark Gardner's pitching. Daryl Hamilton leads off. He gets a base hit. Glenn Allen Hill is at DH for the National League. Um, and uh, here's Interleague. Do uh, you think you'll ever get used to it? You know, I was uh, I was excited to, to do the Interleague thing. You know, I, I'm not fond of the DH. I mean, I'll say that. But I was excited to, to do that. I thought, you know, you played your, your own division so many games that it was nice to see the other players in the other cities and, and uh, you know, see something different. I mean, who wants to play the same team 20-something times or whatever the number was? It was, it was an awful lot. And, um, yeah, you, you stop playing out of your division a little bit more. We used to go, like, to New York twice a year or Chicago twice a year, and it all went down to once a year after Interleague came in. But I think it was good for the sport. I think the fans liked it. The fans were able to see some American League clubs, which they didn't have to go to Oakland to see. They could see it in San Francisco. And I I enjoyed it all. And I I do remember, you know, the first interleague. It was uh, quite a change, but uh, I enjoyed it. You know, Ron, the only time we really win the interleague was in the minor leagues because they didn't just do National American. And we always enjoyed watching other players from other teams uh, as they proceeded to get to the big leagues. And then once the big leagues adapted to it, I thought it was the greatest move. 
of course, I'm not going to uh, sway your your way in the DH because I don't like it in the National League. And we'll just see if it's uh, going to be put in this year if they play baseball. Hopefully, they will, and we'll see if it works. But I, I love it. I, I think it's great for fans and uh, not just your fans, fans of baseball, to see National League teams come into American League parks and vice versa. And I hope they just continue to keep doing it. I think they will. Uh, yeah, they will. Yeah, I think so. I yeah, really it's the do. Money. The money is there. Uh, as these two sides try to stare each other down, we'll see where it ends up uh, next week. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Allen Hill, well, we'll close with that one. Uh, Glenn Allen Hill, I remember him from Santa Cruz. Kind of uh, yeah. an interesting guy. Maybe swing and miss, you may say. But, boy, when he hit the ball, he hit it. Yeah, I know. Glenn Allen uh, he actually played for me. Um, in Phoenix, you know, I had when I was managing in AAA, we'd get rehab guys come down. Or <clears throat> he spent half a season with me, I believe, one year. Or, or it was a long rehab or something. But I uh, got to know him very, very well. Um, yeah, he, he was a dangerous hitter. <clears throat> um, a, l- a little, little shaky at times in the outfield. I mean, he got the <laughs> yeah. job done. But when that ball went up, he'd do that cha 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 with his feet, <laughs> and he'd be dancing around. Uh, but he'd make the play. But he didn't look he didn't look as comfortable or confident in the outfield as he did at home plate. And when he hit it he could hurt the third baseman, I'll tell you that. And he was a different cat. Yes. You know, I use the yes, word yeah. cat because he was a cat, right, Bill? I mean, he had yeah. different ideas and, and different things going on there, but a nice guy. I enjoyed being around Glenn Allen Hill, and he he was managing in the minor leagues and and yeah. got to the big leagues as a coach. He still may be in the minor leagues managing. I'm not sure. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, well, Glenn Allen was Dusty Baker's guy. Dusty loved him. Just his energy and spontaneous. All like you say, he comes in the on deck circle. He's thinking one way, one way out of the yard, and that's how he swung. And uh, I agree with you. In the outfield, fly ball would hit, and you're just wondering: Is he going to catch it? How is he going to catch it? And if it's going to be over his head or what? Uh, the the defensive structure of Glenn Allen Hill wasn't wasn't one of his top performances, but. Swinging the bat, boy, he could swing it. And he, you know, he had some speed, too. And, you know, after he yeah. left the Giants, I remember him being a first base coach with the Rockies for many years because they'd always, Cook and Kite would always tell a story about him. And I'd just sit there and laugh because all of them were good at Glenn Allen stories. Yeah, good guy. <laughs> and he was different. Well, you're right. Uh, he was, uh, I remember interviewing him. And I said, boy, this is a little different. Got to hang in here with him. You never know what he was going to say. That was pretty good. Yeah. Hey, one last thing yeah. uh, on uh, this day in baseball history. Jimmy Rollins on this date broke the Phillies' all-time hit record. Uh, went past Mike Schmidt. We had Jimmy Rollins uh, well in spring training. I got to know him, uh, of course, when he played at Encinal High School here. Uh, Evan, my son, played at El Cerrito. I remember playing against Jimmy Rollins. Uh, but um, Jimmy Rollins was with the Giants just for spring training. Did you get to know him at all? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, uh, you know, great guy. I uh, well, we had to face him in Philly. You know, him and Utley, they were so good, and they mm-hmm. were the class in league. If you were going to get into the playoffs, you had to go through Philly when they had those good teams. And J. Rowe was always in the middle of it, leadoff hitter. I mean, he could hit anywhere in the lineup. Switch hitter, dangerous from both sides. Uh, really was a good defender. Had an outstanding arm. 
um, you know, range. He could do it all. He could steal a base, and he was a he was a fantastic player. So I was excited to have him. Of course, he was on the downside of his career when we got him in spring training. He was fighting for the utility role. We did a lot of early work, and and I was impressed his desire to play for the Giants. He really wanted to be on the team. He was out early every morning. We were working on a double plate pivot. You know, he played mostly shortstop. So. Playing second base was a little bit of an adjustment. He had done a little bit turning to double play and he working at third. And you know, it, it's you got an everyday player, an all star, a fantastic player as a shortstop. Then you have to learn the other positions, and you're fighting for a utility role. Not everybody would accept that. And you know, it was a it was a tough decision. Uh, he didn't make the club, uh, but a lot of people wanted him on the club, and uh, he probably would have done a great job as a utility player. Um, because he had that experience, you know, he could spot play, knew how to hit off the bench. Um, but I can't remember who beat him out for that role. But uh, it was a great guy, and it was it was nice to get to know him. Yeah, had fun with him yeah. with Willie Mays uh, in the clubhouse. He loved mm-hmm. Willie, and Willie loved him. And you know, Willie would sit, you know, at the table there, and uh, Jimmy would get it on with him really well. It was a good guy. Yeah. He was, and I tell you what, he was kind of the face of baseball back when he was with the Phillies, captain of the Phillies. They, they had so many great runs back then, and, you know, when the Philly fans love you, you must be doing something right because there's not too many people that they like when they're in that Philly uniform or opposing team. But uh, Jimmy Rollins was that kind of guy, and he'll go down in Philly history as one of their best players. Yeah, borderline Hall of Famer, I guess I wouldn't think about it, but um... – a lot of, lot of, you know, MVP of the league, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, Probably he was. so. Yeah, World mm-hmm. Series and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Jimmy Rollins, yeah, good guy. I'm glad that we could yep. touch on him. Hey, uh, Doug said, Doug Greenwald, Glenn Allen Hill got let go by Colorado after managing their AAA team for a handful of years. He texted with him last week, and he hasn't landed a job this winter. So that's mm. the Glenn Allen Hill story. Okay. So mm. that's yeah. a, a story with him. I'm glad we could talk about some of these players. And uh, as I said, this is what baseball is all about. You know, this is True. exactly what it's all about. And uh, got to get it back. And uh, we'll see how the stare down goes. But, well, we may be <laughs> talking to you for a few more weeks before you got any action. <laughs> Well, I'm available on Saturday night. Six o'clock. I, like the, I, I like the late dinner, the late dinner on Saturday night. So I'll be here, Marty, until we start working. All right. All right. Uh, I, I appreciate it. Hey, Ron, I just want to make sure your fast track is working in a couple of weeks. Oh, I've been to the city a couple of times. I've got to make sure it, it registers. So once a week, I try to get in there just to see if the thing will beat for me. Yeah, actually, it's a, you know, if there is a spring training with, you know, if all this happens, it will be in San Francisco, which will be different for you. The whole thing is going to be different. And I'll say it again. It's up to the health of the players and the country and the city and everything that's going mm-hmm. on is all wrapped into this whole thing. This is not baseball in a vacuum. There's a lot going on. So let's stay tuned and we'll see what happens. But guys, another great night. And I appreciate you both being on. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Well said, Marty. You, Marty. Enjoyed it, Bill. You take care. We'll see you next week, huh, guys? Yep. Same to both of you guys. Be safe and uh, enjoy the weather. It's getting nice out. All right. Take care. All right. That is Bill Lasky and the Professor Ron Wotus. We've got Kerry Crowley coming up. We've got a full show ahead for you. So, uh, 
You know the story where baseball is right now, and the union and uh, the owners sort of staring each other down again, and letters and missives going back and forth, accusing each other. It's it's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. But that's the the world we live in today. There's a lot of polarization going on. So I always like to uh, acknowledge the family. I don't get to see enough of them, even with uh, with the quarantines and social distancing going on. So. For Bonnie, Greg, uh, Noah, congratulations on the uh, graduation, and Ruby, and uh, Evan, and Robin, and Lolly, and Stella, and of course Marlene, and Christina, Barbara, Penny, and Piero, uh, getting me going here, and of course uh, Aaron over at Byright. So uh, we remember Barry Faden tonight too, uh, Robin's dad, and uh, passed away a couple of years ago. No one better. Then Barry, we loved him very much, and uh, remember him uh, on this uh, this evening. Big Philly fan as well. He would have enjoyed the Jimmy Rollins story.